Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, the host of the channel. And today we're in the presence of greatness. We have uh, Professor Jim Al-Khalili with us. He's a world-famous theoretical physicist at the University of Surrey in England. And he holds a distinguished chair in physics, as well as a university chair in public engagement in science. Uh, he's also a prominent author and a broadcaster with BBC. He has written... Um, over 14 books on popular science and the history of science, some of which have been translated into 26 languages. And today he's here with us to talk about his latest book, The Joy of Science, published by Princeton University Press. Professor Jim Al-Khalili, welcome to New Books Network. Hi, Moteza. Glad to be here. Uh, there are lots of lots of things I want to ask, and I hope to be able to get to them all uh, within the short amount of time we have. So to start with, it's customary to ask our guests uh, how... How, how they became interested in the area in which they are an expert. So how did you become interested in physics, especially theoretical physics? And maybe you can tell us uh, mm. what is, who is a theoretical physicist and how is it different from an experimental physicist? Sure. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess I was a teenager when I got interested in, in physics as a subject. I realized I was good at it, uh, far better at physics than chemistry and biology, because in chemistry and biology you had to remember stuff. And I wasn't good at remembering, or I could memorize, but then I'd forget it very quickly. Whereas physics, for me, was about solving puzzles. It was about common sense, logical thinking. If I do this, what happens? It was only when I was at university studying physics that I realized I actually much preferred theoretical over experimental physics. Going into labs and tweaking dials and being... Uh, not in control in a sense, because you have instruments and equipment that go wrong. In theoretical physics, it was all about doing maths, doing um, uh, writing computer codes. It was stuff that I felt I could contain within my head and have some sense of control over. And I've always enjoyed maths, the algebra and the calculus. So I realized very quickly that if I was going to be a professional physicist, I wanted to do theory the maths, the algebra, the computer programming, rather than going into a lab doing experiments. 
Yeah, uh, you just mentioned like it was difficult to retain all that information with biology, maybe because it has something to do with memorization. Mm. And yeah, I studied science when I was in high school and my biology was horrible. It was okay <laughs> in physics. So once I had this teacher, well, we don't want to badmouth the teacher, but anyway, I failed one quote. But when I redid the, that physics course, I started, I, I actually understood rather than trying to memorize things and everything kind of nicely fell into yeah. place. Yeah. That's always very satisfying, isn't it? When things yeah, fall, it's just the, like, when the penny drops. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it was like a moment of epiphany. I had just discovered something new. <laughs> so let's talk about your book, the, the Joy of Science. How did this book come about? Why did you decide to write it? And did the pandemic and all this renewed interest in science and also the people who are kind of anti-science, we, we saw a mm. wave of them, did it play any role? Well, it's certainly a book of our time, and it would be nice to say it was prompted and triggered by the pandemic and by the, the the importance of having to explain how science works for people to gain trust in science, whether it's about having a vaccine, whether it's about, you know, uh, other sort of health and, and, and behavior issues. But actually, the book was born before the pandemic. My previous book, a book called the, um, the World According to Physics, the final chapter was really about how we do science. How have we discovered what we know about the universe? So it gave me an opportunity to talk about what's called the scientific method. And it was that that I felt could be expanded more broadly. So this new book, The Joy of Science, is really about not only celebrating the achievements of science, but also explaining how we do science and the fact that wider society could, in the humblest possible way I'm suggesting, benefit from some of the rational approaches that we 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 use in in uh, in the process of science and learning about the world, but use it in daily life. And and in the book, you make this distinction between science and knowledge, which I really loved. And I come from a, a humanistic background myself, and I know you were also a humanist. Uh, let's get start, let's get start with some definitions, and then I'll ask you the uh, other question, which is about uh, this dichotomy that is between science and humanities, which is a big thing, especially in the United States with culture wars. But anyway, how how do you distinguish between science and knowledge? Because to a lot of people, science is facts, but exactly. your definition is different. Yeah, exactly. So very, very people think if someone is good at science, it means they know stuff. They know, you know, the the, the bones in the body or the chemical symbols or the, the equations of Newton's laws of motion or whatever. That's not those are facts. And and facts are part of at the body of knowledge that we have about the world. Science is a way of gaining that knowledge. Of course, there are other ways, you know, you, through uh, uh, reading books, through art and culture and literature and poetry and debate and discussion, listening to someone who knows more than you, <laughs> life experience. But if we want to find out how the world works, how, how you know, what, what a reality is, then science is, in my view, the best way. So science is not the facts, it's not the knowledge, it's the process by which we gain that knowledge. And it's that process that, that, that is what we call science or the scientific method. And speaking of that process, and that's what I'm kind of interested in, scientific method, it, uh, many people just assume that science, science is just walking into a lab, but just as you mentioned, there is a process, a scientific method, which has, which, I mean, which has uh, criteria such as falsibility, replicability, and you do mention some of them in the book. So can you define scientific method? And uh, there is this very famous scientific method, Popperian, uh, Popper approach, which, uh, which I listened to one of your interviews, and he said it's kind of 
declining and people are becoming more, our scientists, scientific community is becoming more in favor of uh, a Bayesian approach. So mm. can you tell us yeah. what scientific method is? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of people who, who who work in this area, philosophers of science, for example, would say if there isn't the scientific method, mm-hmm. there are scientific <laughs> methods because science is so broad. So people do think the scientist is the, is usually male, right, <laughs> and and usually white, and wearing a white lab coat and going into a lab and messing around with test tubes or or maybe writing very difficult algebra on a blackboard. Science is broad. So science can be, you know, uh, um, sitting on a cliff edge, observing uh, nesting behavior of birds. It could be climbing into a volcano. It could be uh, developing computer models to study the climate. You know, it, it could be mixing chemicals in a lab. So there are lots of ways that uh, or criteria that we call a part of the umbrella of the scientific method. Certainly, yeah, people say, well, scientific method is about being curious about the world, but lots of people are curious about the world. Um, even a conspiracy theorist would argue they're, they're being curious and they want, they're searching for answers. Uh, or you say science is about coming up with a hypothesis and then looking for evidence to support or refute that. Well, a historian does the same thing. So here we talk about, you talk about the two cultures. There are lots of similarities. You know, history isn't part of science, but history and science both use the same approach of coming up with a narrative, a story, and then testing it. Um, The Popper, uh, 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 Popper was a famous philosopher of science in the 20th century. Um, He talked about scientific theory needs to be refutable. So it needs to be, you know, we need to be able to knock it down to say that it's false. That, as you mentioned, is slightly falling out of favor now, although, you know, a lot of scientists still think it's very important. So the, the nice example is you say all swans are white. You only need one brown swan to refute that theory. But of course, that brown swan may just be a white swan caked in mud. <laughs> so the, the, the refutation how do we know that's the true thing? Why, why do we refute something uh, or trust something that goes against the theory and get rid of the theory? You know, you, you have to weigh things up. And that's where this Bayesian approach, Bayesian inference comes in. It seems to be a very sensible way. It's, a, it's a, an, an area, a method in statistics. Uh, basically, it says, you know, you have a hypothesis, you have a theory. You start off with what are called priors, assumptions, or, 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 or things that you can say about it that, that you start off with, but then you gather evidence and data and you can revise those priors. So it's a way of working out the probability that something is right. Um, it's used in lots of areas of science now, and uh, lots of people even think of it as a, a philosophy of life. You know, people talk about me. I'm a Bayesian naturalist. You know, I don't, I don't believe something. I, I, I say, well, what are the chances that this is right? What, what do I know? What can I infer from that? So that seems to be a more sensible approach. And uh, I'm going to go back to the distinction made between knowledge and science, and we might pick it up later on as we speak uh, about other topics in the book. I, uh, like I said. Uh, to me, when I read, uh, when, when we come up with this distinction between science and, and, and knowledge, there might be this misconception that science is always prioritized over knowledge. There is this hierarchy and whatever it is proven through a scientific method is valid knowledge. But whatever, for example, a historian comes up with, a sociologist comes up with, a philosopher comes up with is not 
proper knowledge is just a set of assumptions, opinions. And, and in humanities, we have this problem. There is no scientific method in humanities, and there can't be because the nature of the knowledge is different. So and I'm asking this because I know you are also a humanist. Do you think that a humanist approach to some of the problems of the work we're dealing with is uh, is less of a value than a scientific method? Or let me put it this, is, is science a panacea to the problems we have in the world? Of course not. Uh, uh, as I said, there are lots of different ways of gaining knowledge, and 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 the scientific method is one. The scientific method it, it's much easier to to sort of argue and 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 shout about how great the scientific method is when we're talking about how it applies to the natural sciences: physics, chemistry, biology, astronomy, geology. You know, there's stuff out there. There's facts about the world. There's you know the Darwinian theory of natural selection, the the, the germ theory of disease, plate tectonics, the the the, the, the model of, of our solar system with the Earth going around the sun and not the other way around. This is stuff as you know, although we, we say there are you know no facts and scientists should never be one hundred percent certain, as good as damn it. We know these to be true, and no amount of debate or discussion or contemplation in 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 in, in philosophy or, or or any other area of human thinking is going to change those facts that were discovered by the scientific process. So, in some areas, what we've learned about the world through science is a sense non-negotiable. But it doesn't, of course, apply to the complexity of of human behavior and human nature and and uh, morality and ethics and so on. There are areas where science really is very limited in what it can say, which is why the world would be a very boring place if we were all just adopting the scientific method to find out how to live our lives. There are our lives and and the human condition is far more complex than that. Yeah, and, and I guess scientists from early days had always these these, these uh, grand ideas of creating a utopia. I forgot the name of the, it's on tip of my tongue, but it just skips my mind. The famous British, the father of science in England, uh, who wrote also a novel. Uh, anyway, back in the during Enlightenment, I'm sure uh, you remember. Oh, oh, uh, I think Bacon or <laughs> Francis Bacon. Um, Francis, yeah, Bacon. Francis Bacon. Okay, Bacon. that's right. Right. <laughs> uh, let. Let me talk, let me ask you about uh, a quote from your book. I'd like to read this quote from the book. Um, the fate of humanity lies not so much in the hands of politicians, economists, and re- or religious leaders, but in the knowledge that we gain about the world through science. Which uh, this is something hardly anybody could disagree with, because especially in the past two years and the pandemic, science you know create we, the, the scientists created the vaccine, saved hundreds of thousands of lives, but uh, but scientific advice is sometimes dismissed by politicians, by economists. Uh, well, I guess the famous example is climate change, even, even uh, in, especially in the United States or even in England, some more conservative politicians simply dismiss scientific advice. And, uh, uh, and, and unfortunately, I felt it, I felt it did some damage to their to the community i mean community the scientific community what, what do you think about this do you think that is it in the hands of scientists or politicians well i mean first of all we should say and i think scientists are starting to thankfully recognize this that even though we can provide uh, um, evidence and advice to governments to policymakers, scientists aren't aren't elected 
uh, it's the politicians who are elected and it's the politicians who are answerable to, 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 to the public. And also acknowledging that politicians do of course, have other things that they have to take into account rather than, you know, if we offer scientific advice on a particular policy, politicians also have to take into account economics, public acceptability, and, you know, and other other aspects. So it may be that, well, yes, the scientific advice is to do this, but on the on balance, we should do something else. We saw this in the, in, in, during the pandemic, you know, balancing lockdown versus having the economy suffering in the long term sort of thing. But Certainly, the, the the challenges that face us in the twenty first century, the the United Nations, there's a whole list of of uh, uh, of, of goals that it says you know we have to tr- strive for to achieve. Whether it's you know tackling climate change, biodiversity, poverty, disease, all those sorts of things, they are not going to be solved by sitting around debating, discussing. They're not going to be solved by economics. They're not going. They are going to need. But first and foremost, a scientific solution. Climate change is the best example. You know, we do need to have the scientists offering advice, and we hope to convince politicians that they need to think ev- on an evidence-based uh, way of developing their policies. We've seen it during the pandemic, and I hope that politicians have sort of learnt from that how important it is to listen to the scientists. Uh, let us talk about... The book, and, and you do mention this fact in the book as well. Science can offer advice and solutions, but again, the politicians have to take into account the impacts of their decisions on the community. Yeah, uh, the joy of science. Uh, I remember when I majored in English, and when people asked me why I majored in English, I said that because I love poetry, I love arts, but because sciences. And I studied science in my country. You had to choose a major in your high school, and I studied science in high school, and. Uh, the, the rationale that I had for choosing English in university was that science is a very hardcore set of dry facts, but you don't, but you don't agree with this. And the name of the book is The Joy of Science. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, when I started reading the book, I had I, I wanted to read the book with a critical mind, but then I, after the first chapter, I started smiling and I just went through the whole book <laughs> and I absolutely loved it. <laughs> and you start with, Good. again, some, some examples in the book as well. So how... how uh, how could science be joyful? What it does doesn't it kill the beauty of, for example, the rainbow, the example you use in the book, to explain it scientifically? Yes, yeah, so, well, this is certainly what the poet Keats uh, accused Isaac Newton of when you know Newton, having discovered that l- sunlight can be broken up into the different colors, you know, using a prism, he said, "You've destroyed the magic of the rainbow by breaking it up into its prismatic colors," and. My point, and I'm not the first person, obviously, to argue this. In very many other great scientists, you know, people like Richard Feynman, Carl Sagan, even Richard Dawkins, argue that knowing something more about how the world works doesn't destroy the magic. It doesn't turn it into hard, cold, rational, you know, Mister Spock type worldview. It adds to the beauty. Science, the, a scientific explanation of something can be as as spiritual, as as uplifting, as joyous as the most beautiful poem uh, or the most beautiful painting or piece of music. Certainly some areas of science you need you need the expertise to appreciate it, but in the same way that you know you need some understanding of modern art to appreciate an, a piece of abstract art or complex piece of music. 
the rainbow is a good example. We say the rainbow is beautiful and it has colors, but you scientists come along and talk about, you know, uh, light being reflected and refracted, uh, uh, angles and so on and trigonometry. Actually, learning about the rainbow, as I describe in the book, adds to the beauty. We learn, for example, through science that no two people see the same rainbow. Each one of us sees our own unique rainbow because it's particular droplets of water suspended in the air from rain that reflect a coloured light into our eyes at a specific angle. They don't reflect that light into another person's eye standing next to us. So we each see our own individual rainbow. Rainbows are actually full circles, not just arcs. And you can see that if you're up in the sky or like pilots and planes see that. So learning more about how the world is makes it more wondrous, makes it more joyful and wanting to celebrate it. It doesn't wrap it up into these logical hard facts. And if people think of science as just logic and hard facts, then then the the people teaching them aren't doing a good job. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. And and the example of uh, John Keats that you mentioned reminded me of the American poet Walt Whitman who had this famous uh, poem, The Learned Astronomer. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> De- depressing. I, I sometimes get that uh, attitude at parties as well that, you know, I get uh, accused of, oh, Jim, you're just uh, mm-hmm. depressingly logical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I appreciate that as a piece of poetry, but uh, I guess, especially in 21st century, that's not a good stand for humanists to bring up that scientists kill the joy of you know, the beauty of the world or anything. Anyway, uh, let's uh, move on. I, you, you are a world famous uh, physicist and quantum physics, and you've more recently been talking in lectures about quantum biology, which is even more fascinating. I, and one of the lessons in your book, uh, your book, I should have mentioned it maybe in the beginning of the talk. There are eight chapters. There are eight lessons, uh, the joy of science. Uh, one of them is uh, it's more complicated than that. So I'm going to defer to that. But I know quantum biology is difficult to explain, but okay, <laughs> what is it? And uh, maybe you could give us an example of how it can help us to better understand maybe the secrets of world or life yeah. yeah well yes i mean certainly i think yeah I, I make that point that sometimes you know we do like especially in today's world to simplify things don't blind me with details you know just give me the bottom line the tweet the meme uh, uh and sometimes issues and topics are more complicated and in science as well you know we can't always even for me as a science communicator i try and get across complex ideas as simply as possible but sometimes you know the the, the subtleties the details are, are, are buried deeper and one has to work harder to explain and the other person to understand. Quantum biology, no, I can. I could have a, a stab at explaining it b- b- briefly. We know there's quantum physics and there's quantum chemistry. When I say we, you know, sort of the scientific community. <laughs> um, quantum mechanics, the theory of atoms and molecules and subatomic particles. And it's a very strange uh, scientific uh, understanding of of, of reality uh, from the one of our everyday experience, you know, balls bouncing and pendulums swinging and things rolling, the stuff, the physics that we learn at school. Quantum mechanics says that down at the atomic scale, atoms and subatomic particles behave in a very probabilistic, fuzzy way that's very hard to grasp, almost magical and, and counterintuitive. In physics and chemistry, we're used to this. In biology, biologists have really not needed to to think about quantum mechanics, even though 
the processes of life, if you zoom in deep enough, they're down to the behavior of molecules. Um, so quantum biology doesn't mean that all life is ultimately made of atoms and atoms need quantum mechanics to describe them, therefore life does, because you know, everything is made of atoms, right? Um, and quantum biology isn't also this, ooh, quantum mechanics is very strange and, and weird and, and trippy, and, and, uh, and therefore it will explain mis- mysteries like the nature of consciousness, or it might explain mysteries like you know, alternative medicines. No, quantum biology is simply a new field that we're dis- where we're discovering that inside living cells, there are certain processes that only work because of the magic of quantum mechanics that seem to be very vital for life. One example, an example that I'm working on with my, my, my research group at Surrey. In fact, we've just published a paper uh, in, 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 uh, in the journal Nature uh, on how DNA, the double helix of life, undergoes mutations because of an individual atom jumping from one strand of DNA to the other. And that atom is atom of hydrogen, which provides the glue that holds the strands together. It's been suggested, even Crick and Watson, who, who worked on the double helix back in the early 50s, had suggested this in a paper, that you could get mutations due to this uh, hydrogen atom jumping across. No one had done the, the, the calculation carefully enough. We've just uh, written a paper showing that actually it looks like it's much more important than, than people thought. There's lots more I could talk about, but that's probably enough detail to, to, to whet your appetite. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly is. And, and there is another thing in physics. Well, actually, one of my, I have a, this nerdy friend, Kevin, who asked me, who wanted me to ask this question, wave pilot theory, which is, again, mm. one, I think it's, and the way he told me that there are, there, there are few physicists who are proponent of this uh, theory, and you're one of them. Uh, yeah. Is that oh. also simple enough to explain? <laughs> Uh, probably. Okay. Normally, it's it's called pilot wave theory, not wave pilot theory. Ah, but that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, quantum mechanics is probably the only theory in science that seems to have multiple narratives, multiple interpretations of explaining what the maths means. Now, normally, you know, in a theory, you have the algebra, and then you say, what do these symbols stand for? How does this connect to the real world? Um, Einstein's theory of relativity, it, Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism, Newton's law of gravity, all those things you can equate the maths to, to reality via some sort of narrative. Quantum mechanics has these multiple ways of explaining it. And, and each of them makes the same, each of them agrees with the maths, each of them agrees with every experiment we, can, we, we care to test. So we're unable to work out which is correct. So one of the most popular ones is called the many worlds theory, which says that that there are multiple uni- parallel universes, parallel realities. The pilot wave theory was uh, proposed first by a French physicist called Louis de Broglie in the 1920s, and then developed further by an American physicist, David Bohm. Um, yes, you're right. It's it's um, it's one that's sort of less popular than others. I would, I'm not sure I'd say I'm a, propon- a proponent of it strictly, but I'm I'm a fan in the sense that I sort of quite like it would like it to be the correct interpretation what i do believe is there is a correct interpretation out there 
It's just that we haven't found which one it is. Nature behaves in a certain way. The fact that we have got lots of ways of explaining, that's our problem, not nature's. And we need to find out which is the correct one. By the way, theory simply says there's one universe, particles that we talk about particles behaving also like waves. It says there are waves and particles, and it's the waves that carry the particles. Uh, And so it almost splits reality into these two different concepts. Lots of physicists don't like it. Um, It has its own difficulties and problems, but every interpretation of quantum mechanics has something that we can criticize about it. Otherwise, we would have found the right one by now. We're still looking. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's... uh... Again, I listened to one of your talks here. Is it what that that wave you talked about? That's what I call phantom, if I'm not mistaken. I just, I, 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 when I tend to in popular accounts, when I talk about quantum tunneling, mm-hmm. the particle yeah. that behaves like a wave that can can actually get through an what would should be an impenetrable energy barrier. I say it's it's like a phantom mm-hmm. passing through a, like a ghost passing mm-hmm. through a brick wall. We don't see that happening in, in, in our everyday world. Yet down at the atomic scale, quantum tunneling is something that happens all the time. It's mm. just, that's just the way nature is in, 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 at that scale. Mm. Uh, in chapter two of your book, uh, you talk about this phenomenon called Occam, uh, Occam's razor phenomenon. Occam's razor, yes. Yeah, it's one of those uh, interesting, there are many interesting examples from science and anecdotes you use in the book. And also, and then you talk about Einstein's biggest blunder. So I was wondering, for the benefit of the audience, you could talk about that. What is Occam's razor mm. phenomenon? So, so o- William of Occam was a medieval monk in in uh, in England. Uh, in fact, he lived in a village not far from my university. Um, uh, the, the razor, Occam's razor, is this principle we we tend to use not just in science but in everyday life which is that the simplest solution or the simplest answer is probably the right one you know why complicate things more than you need to um and and it's it's very powerful uh but sometimes particularly in science the simplest answer isn't the correct one. sometimes it is a bit more complicated than that so you know einstein when he was developing um his theory of gravity uh, which we you know, would now call general relativity, went beyond Newton's picture of gravity. He was trying to describe the whole universe. And he said, well, the universe is full of stuff, right? Full of matter. And matter pulls itself together. So why isn't the universe just imploding due to the mutual attraction of gravity? There must be something holding it s- stable. And he called, he called that thing the cosmological constant. It was a, simple, a Greek letter in his equation for, for the, the, the describing the universe. Um, but then we discovered the universe is actually expanding. So for Einstein, it was like the universe was like a ball halfway up a hill and gravity should pull the ball back down. So his cosmological constant sort of held the ball in place, kept it stable. When we discovered the universe is actually expanding since the Big Bang, that's like the ball has been kicked up the hill. So it's going up the hill, but gravity is constantly slowing it down. And we thought, well, one day it'll either, you know, uh, get to the top of the hill or it'll roll back down again. And that's what we call the big crunch. So Einstein suddenly realizes, okay, I don't need my cosmological constant. Uh, I don't need anything to hold the thing in place because it's been set in motion up the hill in the first place. He called it his biggest blunder. Fast forward to 1998 and astronomers discover the universe is expanding 
ever more quickly. So it's like the ball rolling up the hill is rolling up faster and faster. It's crazy. There must be something pushing it up faster and faster. Enter cosmological constant again. That's exactly what you need to make the ball go up again. So as we learn more in science, sometimes the simple solutions aren't the correct ones. Sometimes there's more complexity. In physics, thankfully, things tend to be easy. But a subject like biochemistry, there's layer upon layer of complexity. You learn something and it's all you're doing is peeling back another layer of the onion. And there's another mechanism that causes that to happen. So yeah, Occam's razor isn't always right. We'd like it to be. And in everyday life, it's the same. There are issues in everyday life, whether to do with ideology or politics or whatever, where we like to think that the correct answer is the simple one. But we should learn from science that sometimes you just need to think about things a bit more deeply. And uh, let us talk about another part of your book. Uh, you do mention that, well, we, we through a scientific method, we get to truth or reality or fact or whatever term we want to use. But you do also mention that science is not free, is not, uh, is not free from bias or, or ideology. How is that? Because it might come as a surprise to a lot of people. How is it that scientists can bring in his own ideology or biases into the... Yeah, well, you know, scientists are humans and, and, and scientists are fallible like everyone else. We try and have integrity and honesty. Uh, but of course, you know, scientists wants their experiment to be correct. They want their result or their theory to be right. They want to publish papers. They want to get research grants. They want to get promotion. They want the respectability of their peers and colleagues, just like anybody else. And so, of course, we would we have our own built-in biases. Sometimes scientists are in the pay of someone. We're not all independent-minded, free-thinking. Sometimes, you know, you you have someone telling you what to do, what to research, and someone who has a vested interest in something. Uh, and so there are biases in science. What comes to the rescue is the scientific method. The, the fact that, that if you come up with an idea, if you're wrong, the truth will out at some point. Others will have to repeat your results, your experiment or, or your observation, and check if you're right or not. This is the, the refutability business and repeatability of, of the scientific method. So the scientific method acts to correct for our natural biases in science. And we'd like to think that in science, we want to test our own ideas. We want to check if we're right or not. We don't just say, right, I believe this is right, and I'm not going to argue with anyone. I want to check because if I'm wrong, I'd rather find out for myself than have somebody else tell me your theory, your idea isn't, isn't worth anything. So while there are biases, we think about, we are aware of them. And it's and I think it's more in the social sciences that's much they're much better at this because there are so many more potential biases and pitfalls when you're dealing with the complexity of human affairs. In the physical sciences, uh, the, the, they're less aware of them because we like to think there's an absolute truth out there that we're striving towards and we're all heading in the same direction. But we should also, in all areas of science, be aware of our personal biases and, and fight against them. And is that the reason why in the book you do call for more diversity in science? Because, again, uh, people, a lot of people, even some of your colleagues might say science is science. So if mm. diversity doesn't mean a thing in science, but you do call for uh, more diversity in science. Absolutely. Doesn't it detract well, from objectivity? 
Yeah, I know. So this is exactly the point about science being the process, not the facts. The, 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 the facts, the no body of knowledge about the world transcends culture and, and, and time and space. And if there's an alien civilization on the other side of the galaxy who are smart, they will also have come across quantum mechanics and discovered general relativity and so on. Because the, the knowledge about the world is what it is. We can't have our own version of the truth, our own version of reality. But the scientific method itself, because we have biases and preconceived notions and preferences and ideological views, in order for that to, to minimize the bias, we do need people carrying out the process of science who come from different directions. So we need uh, more women in engineering. We need people from other uh, uh, minorities in, 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 in working in Western universities. We do need people who look at the world in a different way to provide a fresh perspective. Because there are, you know, you're going to, if you only, if everybody only looks, tackles a problem from one direction, we're very likely to miss things. Um, but then hopefully the knowledge we gain, if it's correct, description of reality, then that is the same. So that is universal. But the scientific process absolutely requires as much diversity as, and inclusivity as possible. And uh, you also talk about conspiracy theories and anti-vaxxers, and it's something that has come more to the, to the public's attention in the past two years. And you also mentioned that it's not a new phenomenon with the invention of vaccine back in the 18th century, electricity. We always had people mm. who were against these things. But how do you describe this this phenomenon of anti-vaxxers? Some of them are highly educated people. Like my grandmother is illiterate and she took the vaccine. She mm. trusted scientists. Mm. But still, it's quite amazing that in 21st century, we have these anti-vaxxers and they have their own rationales. They don't know their biases. And that's one of the uh, lessons you put in the book, one of the chapters, mm. know your biases. Yes, it is. It is sad. I mean, you know, if, if there's if there's a conspiracy theorist who believes the earth is flat or that we never went to the moon, you know, that's that's fine. It's harmless. You, you I, I would find it amusing, you know, but I, you, you don't want you don't want to uh, you know, belittle people or say, look, you're stupid or, or, or you don't know what you're talking about. They feel the same thing about you. Uh, so you can't win people over like that. But when it does come something to like, you know, being anti-vaccination, that's dangerous. And you're right. It's not people who are uneducated or not intelligent. But what we need for them to do is absolutely to examine their biases, examine why they believe what they believe, what what is the evidence that they've got to go by? What is it that they don't like about the 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 scientific advice that they're being given about a vaccine is it because they're being given advice by a government that has also given them poor advice and therefore they're not trusting of anything that that body says if they have built-in uh, uh, prejudices against someone then whatever that person tells them they're not going to believe uh, so it's we do have to enter in that dialogue about checking why we believe what we believe and asking other people to, to test and to, to, to examine their own beliefs. That's the only way we can reach a rational uh, way forward. And some of these anti-vaxxers, in their own would do their own research. They come up with evidence, whatever it is. And that brings me to my next question. We live in the uh, 21st century. We have the internet. There's this explosion of information everywhere. And, uh, 
whatever you want to find, whether it's something for the vaccine or against vaccine, you can find it on the internet. But it, as you said, science is a process, so that process could help us to be able to sift through good or bad information. But do you think with the rise of this information culture or this information industry, let's say, scientific expertise or expertise in general is in is is in danger does it jeopardize uh, yes it, it it is a worry because most people even you know however uh, well-meaning they are or, or or smart they are or or, or um, willing they are to sort of explore it's hard to, to know what evidence to trust who is speaking as an expert who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't or has maybe a vested interest to promote a particular ideological uh, viewpoint. Um, So it is hard, given the information uh, overload that we're bombarded with. There's information, there's misinformation, there's disinformation deliberately trying to deceive us. And um, I think it's not, you know, people, you can't tell people, look, open your eyes and see the truth, because as far as they're concerned, they are. They have found the truth because they've gone to some particular website. Is that we all need to understand where that, where that, those opinions are coming from. And it's hard because we don't all have the time and ability and motivation to explore every piece of, of information we get on the internet to dig down and look for its source and then say, is that source reliable and can we trust it? I think we're going to need the help of technology. Uh, and that comes with its own dangers. You know, it's good that you have um, spam filters on your email to stop you getting emails from Nigerians who want to send you millions of dollars or, 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 or adverts for Viagra or whatever. Um, and, and it's quite Neat that, you know, uh, uh, Alexa knows what music you like to listen to or, or Netflix knows the next series that you might like because of reviews. But we need AI to also be able to sift through good information from bad information, from fake news. But who develop, develops that AI? See, this is the problem. You know, you see what's happening, for example, in Russia at the moment, where you have the state-sanctioned information and that, that, that's being fed to people. So, yeah, we need the help of AI, but we also don't want it in the hands of, of uh, uh, unsavory governments or even in the hands of very powerful organizations like Google and Facebook. Uh, uh, we can't, but we can't do it our own. Technology has given us all the information. We need technology to help us sift through the information as well. Uh, just on that, do you think the scientific community or scientists, you are uh, you are also a science promoter, you're a communicator of science. Uh, there are some other famous people, both in England and also in America, doing the same job. But do you think scientific community in general is doing enough to bring that science more into the public attention, to, to become sort of an activist, let's say, uh, and I know that you, for example, you don't get into Twitter debates with anyone, and I think you're, it's the right thing. <laughs> uh, but do you think the scientific community is doing enough to fight this propaganda, maybe, or to bring the, that that those scientific ideas into the public arena more? I think it's happening a lot more now. I, th- I think uh, you know, certainly since the pandemic, but it, there has been an acknowledgement among scientists that communicating what we do to the wider public is increasingly important. When I first started as a science communicator, you know, 25 years ago, or more than that, maybe, 
it was not seen as something respectable. You know, I was a young academic doing my own research and, and publishing papers, and I was warned off by senior colleagues. Don't go and talk to, you know, school kids or, or journalists or write popular articles. You know, focus on your research. Leave that to, to others, right? And I think nowadays, particularly a younger generation of, of scientists, acknowledge that communicating science, engaging with the public on, on scientific issues is hugely important and one of our duties as scientists. Uh, so we are doing a lot more. There are many more people who are vocal explaining how science works and why why we should trust science, not just saying isn't, you know, isn't a black hole cool or isn't the Higgs boson discovery exciting. You know, we're talking about how and why we do science. Um, and, and also persuading politicians to listen to the science as well. Uh, it, it's becoming ever more urgent with all the different uh, challenges facing us. But I, I, I believe certainly in the UK, maybe not everywhere in the world, but certainly UK, I think we are moving in the right direction. Uh, we have very little time, so I'm quickly going to ask you two more questions, maybe. Okay. Uh, one of them is my favorite question, which is the conflict between science and religion. More recently, with a lot of academic research, this has been this myth has been debunked that science and religion have always been in conflict. It started in the 19th century, but in general, I, I know a lot of uh, uh, some religious, really devout religious scientists and physicists. I guess, if I'm mm. not mistaken, one of them is Tom McLean, if I'm not mistaken. McLeish. yes. Yeah. Tom McLeish. Yes, yeah, a good a friend. Yeah. yeah, and mm. he also wrote a book, I think it was called Faith and Science. Do you think science and religion have to be in conflict or are in conflict because this is something which was again renewed the discussion was renewed in mm. the past two years by and large no i don't think they they need to be in conflict. so people like tom mcleish who's a fellow of the royal society is is is, a, is an excellent scientist and and a hugely smart guy uh, he's a very good example you know you don't go to him and say oh you believe in god you're so stupid you know how, how can how can you believe in something so irrational as as a divine creator as you mentioned, I'm a humanist, so I'm not religious. Um, but I acknowledge that, it, firstly, faith is very important to many people uh, uh, for whatever reason that gives them comfort or, uh, or whatever. You know, it's not something one should belittle. Um, secondly, I don't think science and religion normally come into conflict. You know, when when you're if you're an engineer or a laser physicist or or, or, or a particle physicist or, or a geologist, you know. You're doing science. You may have your own personal belief, your faith, and even though I, I, I don't believe in it, I don't see how that would make you a worse scientist. There are areas where probably they do butt up against each other in sort of cosmology and the Big Bang and so on. But even there, I don't think you can, you know, religion would have to change as it has done over the, over the centuries as we discover more about the world. Um, you know, the Earth goes around the sun, not the other way around. Galileo had a, had a hard time, you know, uh, trying to persuade the, the church uh, of that. But the church survived and had to had to acknowledge that our scientific way of viewing the world is something that we can test and, and find reliable. So I don't think there's a conflict. And I don't stand up and argue against people for whom their religious faith is important, even if I wouldn't agree with them on a, on the fundamental basis. Professor Jima Khalili, just wish we had more time to talk to you. Thank you very much for your generosity and time. It's my pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you.